Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll remember Florida folk musician Frank Thomas, who passed away two years ago. Frank Thomas, along with Gamble Rogers and Will McLean, was one of the great Florida troubadours. Some of the old-time country stuff that was really fascinating me. We didn't have electricity, but we had a battery-operated radio. We'll talk about Florida history, real and imagined. Practices of documenting and imagining Florida shapes our understanding of time and historical change. And discuss former Miami resident Desi Arnaz. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Frank Thomas wrote and performed songs about the history, people, and places of Florida. Songs such as Old Cracker Cowman, The Flatwoods of Home, and Spanish Gold have earned him a loyal following. In 2013, Thomas was inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. For four decades, Frank Thomas was a fixture at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, which is where we spoke with him about his deep Florida roots. The Thomas side of the family came into Florida in 1820, and he married a girl who was born in St. Augustine in 1805, and her parents had was well established there, had been there about 20 years. So I'm thinking, you know, that had to be late 1780s or early 1790s. Anyway, uh, but I don't know what her maiden name was either. I, I, I really, if I could find that, I could uh, find out more, you know, about it. But they, they raised children, and uh, there's Thomases scattered all over the place. Members of the Thomas family experienced a lot of Florida history. Longevity seems to run in my family. My daddy was born in 1882. Now, he grew up in a whole different era and environment. Now, you think about that, and I was born in 43, and he was 61, I think, when I was born. And my mother was almost 50. Well, you know, his, his daddy, I think, died at a fairly early age. I think a one-eyed mule kicked him in the head, and that's what killed him. But then my great-granddaddy, who was singing about in that song about the uh, Flatwoods of Home, fought in the, in the Great War, Northern Aggression, and fought in the Seminole Indian Wars, was at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and some of that stuff. And then he, uh, they, they go on back before him. 
Thomas grew up in Middleburg, Florida, in a musical family who played gospel music. His first performing experiences were in church. His early musical influences also included performers on radio broadcasts of the Grand Ole Opry, including Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, and Webb Pierce. Some of the old-time country stuff that was really fascinating me. We didn't have electricity, but we had a battery-operated radio. And my mama would listen to these uh, old soap opera things, you know, in the daytime. My daddy made her save that battery for Saturday night so he could listen to the Grand Ole Opry. And that's where I first started getting the influence. But they sang gospel. And uh, I grew up in that environment singing gospel music. After serving seven years in the Army in the 1960s, Thomas began touring with nationally known gospel, country, and bluegrass bands as a guitarist and singer. He played with groups including the Taylor Brothers, the Webb Family, and the Arkansas Travelers. Of course, I went off and, uh, you know, was uh, worked, toured all over the country with commercial country bands and stuff like that. But I made my way back to Florida in the uh, late 70s and met uh, Will McLean. And Will was a big inspiration for me. He encouraged me to write about Florida. He said, you know, you write all these love songs, cheating songs. You don't do much of that. Write about what you know, you know. And he, he used to tell me that it would take all of us doing all we can to tell Florida's story. There's so much history in the state of Florida. You say Florida, and they think about dismal world, you know, and the tragic kingdom, stuff like that. And the beaches, they don't understand that uh, more calves are birthed in Florida than anywhere else. The calves are birthed here, they ship the calves out west to the feed because it's cheaper to ship the calf one time than to ship food in here to fatten them up once a month or whatever. So it's just, uh, it's fascinating stuff, you know. And, and this area where we're at right now up here in North Florida, this is a big tobacco growing country. Cotton was big up here. And I guess, you know, back uh, before the war, they had plantations up here. Probably had slaves working on the plantations and things. So Florida, it's just fascinating to me, the history of it. All the way back through the Spanish and the British, and then the, the crackers came in, and here we are today. In the late 1970s, Frank Thomas joined other folk musicians such as Gamble Rogers, Paul Champion, and Bobby Droddy in their efforts to preserve Florida stories in song. Back in 1864. Thomas gained a reputation for strongly encouraging other performers to write songs about Florida history and culture. Cousin Thelma Bolton did the same for him. Bolton was director of the Florida Folk Festival at the Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center in White Springs from 1954 to 1965 and continued performing as a storyteller at the annual event until 1986. I try to carry that tradition on, but now sometimes I will give assignments to somebody. You'll write a song about this or about that. The main reason for that was Cousin Thelma Bolton. She used to be the, ran this folk festival so many years. She hemmed me up one time backstage, got to putting her finger in my, she was an old school teacher, retired. she scared me good. But she would, uh, was telling me about she was riding the bus 
one morning, real early, and they come up on this thing where they had a chain across the road with a red lantern hanging across, and they stopped the bus, and they got to sitting there listening, and they heard guns, and they said it was like a war going on. And she said, now they had that old Mar Barker, and her son Doc hemmed up in that house down there, and uh, they killed him right then. She said, now you go write a song about that, and you have that for me the next time I see you. I avoided the rest of the festival. But she would do that to a lot of people. She would assign songs. So I thought, well, you know, that's not a bad song I wrote. And if it worked for her, why couldn't it work, you know, for other people? So I started giving out some assignments, and that's how that all kind of happened. Thelma Bolton told Frank Thomas about the FBI attempt to capture the infamous Barker gang at their Florida hideout in Ocklawaha. The resulting shootout resulted in the deaths of family matriarch Ma Barker and her son Fred. It's pieces of Florida history like this that Thomas captures in song. Well, you can write a newspaper article or a magazine article or whatever, and people will read it, and they'll be putting it in the birdcage the next day or whatever, and they'll forget about it. A song seems to stay with people. It focuses on their mind and they don't forget it. And I think that's why it's, it's especially in, in school, with the, the kids in school, they need to be teaching more Florida history through music in the schools, is my opinion. Florida folk musician Frank Thomas passed away on September 9, 2020. His legacy lives on in the songs he has written about Florida history and culture and in the work of other musicians who he has encouraged to do the same. But descendants of these Indians still walk the Florida sand. Yes, descendants of these Seminoles walk the Okeechobee sand. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find out about the FHS Press 50% off summer book sale, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, historians like Gary Mormino have long recognized that Florida is not only a distinctive place with its own history, it also exists in the imagination. Mormino's Land of Sunshine State of Dreams is perhaps the most comprehensive examination of the real and imagined Florida. But other historians have also grappled with the interplay between imagined expectation and real experience that characterizes insightful analyses of Florida history. In 2012, Julian C. Chambliss, a Rollins College professor in history, and his Rollins colleague, Denise K. Cummings, who taught critical media and cultural studies, edited a special issue of the quarterly on The Mediated State. 
As they explained, the six articles that made up the special issue filled a gap that had emerged in the current historiography of the post-World War II Florida history. Mormino's book, as well as Jack Davis and Raymond Arsenault's Paradise Lost, and Robert Casanello and Melanie Shell Weiss's Florida working-class past, had explored the intersection of the state's political and economic concerns. Chambliss and Cunnings sought to reevaluate Florida's impact on the broader cultural dialogue about the post-war transformation of the United States. The essays they included analyzed the dynamic between popular cultural outputs and lived reality. If that sounds too academic, it simply means that the contributors to the special issue analyzed books, television, architecture, documentary film, and the free flow of thought to understand how practices of documenting and imagining Florida shapes our understanding of time and historical change. By looking at culture, they argue, we can understand that Florida, as a contested space with interconnected communities, multiple origins, and blended identities. Viewing the cultural output provides a platform for assessing the changing nature of the national identity, impacted by the post-World War II culture of consumption, leisure, and growth. Connie, tell us a bit more about the contributors to this special issue. Who were they and what were their various areas of expertise? The contributors spanned a range of cultural expertise and included a historian, a literary scholar, an environmental historian, an architectural theorist, and a new media rhetorician. Allison Meek investigated the relevance of the television program Miami Vice in counteracting the negative media image of Miami that prevailed in the 1980s. In her conclusion, she quotes Steve Sonsky of the Miami Herald. Miami and Vice invented Miami in the eyes of the world. There was no surprise. What was unusual was how Miami then brought into this vision how a city reinvented itself in the stylized, glamorized image that a TV show had of it. David Miller Parker used the dystopian literature of Carl Heisen to analyze the consequences of excess and poor planning in South Florida. He concludes Hyacinth's fictional Florida is dystopian for the sheer awfulness of his many characters and what they have done to the land, even as he reminds readers that it remains an unspoiled paradise in those areas that remain undeveloped. Charlie Haley invokes the cherished ideas represented by the front porch as a social space, offering a site for exchange and engagement with the environmental paradise linked to Florida. He bases his analysis on writings of a number of Florida authors, including Marjorie Kennan Rawlings' use of her porch as a space for writing, Harriet Beecher Stowe's porch as a site for interaction with passing tourists, Zora Neale Hurston's reference to the sleeping porch as a space for belonging, and Ernest Hemingway's elevated Key West porch. Finally, he uses the porch to link the 19th century frontier to the new urbanism of seaside and celebration with the return of the front porch. Leslie Poole, an environmental historian, writes about the 2007 documentary film In Marjorie's Wake, 
which recreates the historic 1933 trip undertaken by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings from the marshy headwaters of the St. Johns River in central Florida to the Ocklawaha River, a distance of more than 100 miles. Poole argues that Rollins' work and the St. John's remain inspirations capable of drawing people together to forge a sense of place that is critical to environmental activism. Finally, Jeff Rice, a rhetorician theorist, offers a self-reflective essay titled Miami Stories that operates as an associative and written journey through the mental connections between popular cultural landmarks that include music lyrics, novels, television episodes, movie scenes, and short stories. When combined with his own experiences, Rice's landmarks can be read as touchstones of history that can be mined and then claimed through the act of writing. The Mediated State Special Issue offers a history based on the writings of non-historians and the impact of those writings in shaping our understanding of the reality of Florida. A fascinating look at our cultural history. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Before gaining national recognition on the TV show I Love Lucy, Desi Arnaz was a very popular musician in Miami. Holly Baker has more. Lucy, I'm home. Generations of television viewers recognized that famous greeting by Ricky Ricardo in the popular I Love Lucy show that aired from 1951 to 1957. Before he brought Ricky Ricardo to life, Cuban-born Desi Arnaz was a musician known as Miami's own conga king. In 1937, he ignited the conga dance craze in Miami Beach at the Park Central Hotel, located at 640 Ocean Drive. Florida native Gary McKechnie is a writer, speaker, and the organizer of the Desi Arnaz historical marker to be placed at the Park Central Hotel, the place where he introduced America to the conga craze. Desi and his father, they're allowed to leave Cuba miraculously in 1934, and they land in Key West, and the mother stays back in Cuba. She joins them later. Here you go. You've got this kid about 16 years old coming to America, but he really doesn't understand the culture. He doesn't really understand the language, and he's trying to make his way. His father and he go from Key West to Miami. All of a sudden, they're looking for work. What do we do? Fortunately, there were some other refugees in the city, someone who knew his father. So through that connection, Desi was able to enroll at St. Patrick's uh, Catholic High School in Miami. And he's starting to learn English. He's starting to assimilate in the culture. But it was no longer his father as a powerful politician. It was no longer his father as a doctor. It was his father as a manual laborer. And the incredible thing is his father had this attitude, and I think a lot of Desi's success comes from his dad. No matter how bad things were, he was always saying, there has to be a way. There has to be a way. That was his mantra. And anytime something would go wrong, his father would think there has to be a way and figure it out. And that was just planted in Desi's mind. When they arrived from Cuba, Desi Arnaz helped his father lay tile in Miami Beach homes. He worked at Woolworths and even had a job cleaning canary cages for 25 cents a cage. After finishing high school, 
Desi Arnaz, a musician at heart, found a way to make money through his love for music. In 1937, he performed the song Bubaloo during an audition to be a singing guitarist at the Roney Plaza Hotel. Xavier Cugat heard the audition, hired Desi Arnaz as a vocalist, and brought him on tour. Desi Arnaz eventually left Cugat's orchestra and struck out on his own. He went to Park Central Hotel in Miami Beach looking for a job. There he met Bobby Kelly, son of entrepreneurial restaurateur Mother Kelly, who was opening a 200-seat nightclub as an addition to the brand-new Park Central Hotel. Advertising himself as Cugat's star performer and promising to bring along an orchestra, Desi was hired for a two-week engagement. Unfortunately, at his debut, it was obvious that his orchestra was really just a handful of musicians who couldn't play the Latin music that Arnez had promised. What he ends up with is like five musicians, none of which know Latin music, none of which have any Latin instruments. It's like a saxophone player, <laughs> a piano player, a guy with a double bass, you know, no marimbas, no maracas no guitars. It's just like, oh my God, Desi's thinking, what do I do with this? So they go and they have a quick rehearsal, like a two-hour rehearsal, and they go to the club that night and they're wearing ruffled sleeves and they're dressed Latin, but they just don't know any Latin music. So they play their first set and they're horrible. And Desi Arnaz is thinking, I'm never going to get a job ever. Now, keep in mind, he's 20 years old. And he's leading a band for the first time. <laughs> he's thinking, this is it. I'm done for. So Desi thinks there has to be a way. And he gets the band together and he goes behind the bar and he gets a bottle of Bacardi rum. And he said, it's the first and only time he's done this. He let his band get drunk. And what he was doing, he was thinking about Santiago, Cuba and a dance called the conga. And he said this would be these huge breakout parties that would go from one village to the next, to the next, to the next city. And it would just be this procession of people who were totally hypnotized by the conga rhythm, that dun, 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 dun. And he said it would go from dawn to dusk. And he's thinking, hey, these guys can't play Latin music, but certainly they can play a conga beat. Desi Arnaz strapped on his conga drum and taught the orchestra the rhythm. Improvising the scene, they started playing the conga beat. Arnez created a conga line that snaked around the dance floor and continued out into the streets. All of a sudden, just like in Cuba, everybody is hypnotized by this. Desi's now really getting into it. His musicians are getting into it. Everybody is, it's like a rapture. And he walks out the door and he's banging his drum and the musicians are with him. And people start walking down or marching, literally, down Ocean Drive, and Desi's leading the way with his conga drum and musicians back into the bar, and people were just exhausted and exhilarated, and Bobby Kelly goes, hey, I want to extend your contract. <laughs> you know, it was, it was this moment. Desi said the conga was his dance of desperation because he had no other outlet. He had no other way to get the crowd on his side. So he goes back the next night and he does it and crowds just start building and building. All of a sudden, Desi is now the 20 year old king of the conga and they call the nightclub La Conga. They were gonna call it Desi's place. He said, no, call it La Conga. 
to land in Miami in 1934, hardly knowing the language, sleeping in a warehouse, to four years later, you're the toast of Miami, you're the king of the conga. And that sort of initiative is just so admirable. Desi Arnaz also played at the Roney Plaza Hotel, the Clay Hotel, and other local venues. But based on his autobiography, the Park Central Hotel was where he had his dance of desperation that started the conga craze in America. The publicity that followed raised his profile and led him first to Broadway and then to Hollywood, where he met the love of his life, Lucille Ball. That's why it's the ideal location for a historical marker dedicated to Desi Arnaz. Gary McKechnie. I read for probably the third time Desi Arnaz's autobiography earlier this year, and it's, it's called A Book, and it's hard to get. It's out of print now, but I keep a copy around and I read it every time I need inspiration in, you know, a good laugh and a good Hollywood story, a good show business story, a good, really a good American story. And when I read that and I read the part about him in Miami Beach, I thought, they're doing documentaries now and docudramas about Lucille Ball. There's fan clubs for Lucy, and deservedly so. And there's a museum, the Comedy Museum in Jamestown, New York, pretty much dedicated to Lucy. And I realized there's no real recognition for Desi Arnaz. And then I remembered having written for Visit Florida and having written a few articles about the Florida Historic Marker Program. I thought, why isn't there a tribute to Desi Arnaz? So I thought, well, because nobody's done it, I should do it. This guy, he's too good of an American, too good of a person not to honor, not to remember. The fan-funded project to obtain a historical marker for Desi Arnaz at the location of the former Park Central Hotel, now known as the Gabriel, is supported by the Arnaz family and the city of Miami. Gary McKechnie created two websites where people can learn more about Desi Arnaz and contribute to the fundraiser for the historical marker. I bought two websites, thankyoudesiarnez.com and graciasdesiarnez.com, because like the sign, the websites are in English and Spanish. So the sign will be in English on one side and Spanish on the other. So everyone will be able to um, understand why we owe a debt of gratitude to Desi Arnaz. Think of how much enjoyment and laughter that man in Lucille Ball created. And if you go to thankyoudesiarnaz.com, there's links to GoFundMe where you can pitch in five, 10, $20 and play a role in this. And anything in excess of $2,500 would go toward programs that help Cuban refugees in Miami or assist maybe English as a second language, just helping the community so his legacy will live on. On the day that the historical marker will be placed at 640 Ocean Drive, Gary McKechnie hopes there'll be a huge celebration in Desi Arnaz's honor, with a conga line, celebrity guests, musicians, and even Lucy and Ricky Ricardo costume contests. The historical marker will be a heartfelt tribute to Miami's conga king and one of America's most beloved stars. Aside from a few blocks of concrete on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, there's a real absence of tributes to Desi Arnaz. You know, there's absolutely no downside to this. And that's why I'm so thrilled, because I was looking for a positive outlet, something to uh, focus on. The pandemic has knocked the wind out of a lot of us, and the news seems bad almost every day. And it's just nice to shift gears and create a positive project that will be there 
to recognize someone that we all can admire. If you'd like to take part in this historic tribute to Desi Arnaz, visit thankyoudesiarnaz.com or graciasdesiarnaz.com, where you can read his story and make a donation. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.